Hi everyone, before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have Ambas as our sponsor for the episode. Hi guys, my name is Virginia Velez Quinones. I am a University of Miami JFK um, internal medicine resident. When I started residency as an intern, I had no clue. I, I had all this knowledge, but I didn't know like how to apply it or where to start. There's a lot of ACS um, ish, like cases that we get on a daily basis. I knew the meds, but I didn't know what order or how to do it. And I clicked just ACS on AMBOSS and it has this little checklist that I was like, oh, this is what I have to do. This is the next thing I should do. This is the third. And at the beginning, obviously, I always went and checked what I had to do. But eventually now it's like routine. It's something that I can just do. So it really did help a lot. Currently during residency, it's still like essential for me. Like I use it all the time. Coriam listeners can get a one month free trial using the code Coriam-Amboss. We'll link all that in the show notes for you. Also, this episode will count for a CME credit with the American College of Physicians. Click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. Checking one set of urine studies and trying to decide what's happening to the patient is kind of like seeing where a planet or a star is in the sky and just deciding based on where it is at that moment, what its orbit looks like and where it's going to be. Like, you, you can't do that. Right, the management of hyponatremia is, by definition, a, a dynamic thing. Uh, right, you're trying to predict or change the behavior of a system that changes over time, and studies are kind of static. That's Dr. John Wong, a hospice at Bellevue and an assistant professor at NYU. And this is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a hospice at BIDMC. And I'm Dr. Tim Rowe, a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Northwestern in Chicago. It is so great to be back with you guys and talking osms again. And I'm Dr. Clem Lee, a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess with Shreya. All right. Today, we are talking all things hyponatremia management part one which means there will be a management part two where we'll be discussing all things, yeah, hypertonic saline, thiazides, overcorrection, vaptins, ICU management, all things that uh, Dr. Tim Rowe, the pulmonologist, gets very, very excited about. Yes, yes. And if you haven't done so already, please make sure to take a listen to the hyponatremia diagnostic episode where we broke down each diagnostic test and what it tells you about the patient's physiology. Right. And our approach to this management episode was very similar. We wanted to break down each hyponatremia management intervention that we have in our arsenal with the idea that if we can understand what that intervention is doing in hyponatremia and why we're reaching for it, then we can be a bit more savvy with the tools we have. Because in the real world, there's often multiple insults and it's not as clear cut. And the better we understand what we're doing, the better we can apply. Amen to that, Shreya. (laughs) Let's get into those pearls we'll be covering in this episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, key principles in management of hyponatremia. What's your approach in understanding the fluid solute balance your patient's in? Pearl two, fluids and fluid restriction. How do you gauge what type of fluid you can give an SIADH, and what can you use to tell on day one that fluid restriction alone will not work? Pearl 
Pearl 3. Solutes. What are the three types of solutes you can use in hyponatremia, and what are each of their drawbacks? Pearl 4. Loop diuretics. How do loop diuretics help in hyponatremia management? Pearl 5. Etiology-driven management. Do you really need to send off a TSH and cortisol on each patient with SIADH? And what do you do when there isn't a clear-cut cause? Okay, guys, so before we get into each of the tools that we have to manage hyponatremia, I think it might be a good idea for us to just take a step back and go over some big picture principles that play into our management. Yeah, and the first one is going to be going back to how all hypotonic hyponatremia comes down to a relative excess of free water in the body. I know this is something that gets emphasized on day one uh, on learning hyponatremia, but this is somehow something I still appreciate every time I hear it. I make them stand up. I make them shout it from the rafters. Hyponatremia is a water problem. That is very unusual for someone who has hyponatremia to have anything wrong but their water balance. That's Dr. Jeffrey William, a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess that you probably remember from our hyponatremia diagnostics episode. And to elaborate on what Dr. William was saying, true hyponatremia is really an imbalance between water and solutes in someone's body, and the ability to excrete that water is impaired or overwhelmed. I'm imagining how much water is going in and how much solute is going in because the solute that goes in helps to eliminate that water. And if they're not in balance, then there's a chance for water overload or the appearance of hyponatremia. So if we really sit with that idea of imbalance between water and solute, we have to ask ourselves, is there too much free water because there's not enough solute to balance out the water, like in tea and toast states? Or is there just too much water because the patient is drinking too much of it, like in psychogenic polydipsia? Or maybe there's a lot of ADH floating around, which makes the body reabsorb extra free water. And as a quick reminder from episode one, that ADH can either be appropriate, like in the case of a hypovolemic individual, or inappropriate, like in SIADH. Part of the management for me is thinking about two things separately. One is, how do I manage this patient right now? Which is often finding the balance between fluid and solute. And how do I manage the underlying disease if there is one, if there's a reason for ADH to be in excess? I think that the most important part of it first is understanding even if they have excess ADH, the only way they would develop hyponatremia is if they were drinking water in excess of their ability to excrete it. Just listen to Dr. William describe the detective work he does to figure out what's tipping the water-solute balance in his hyponatremic patients. I will often ask them, about their fluid intake, and I make sure to include all fluids because I think there's a, there's a fallacy out there that this only re- applies to water, whereas it really applies to all fluids. And I've definitely you know, had patients who drink pots of coffee, and that's water, you know, that's water. <laughs> Even though there's coffee in it, it's still water. And juice and uh, Diet Coke is a popular one. Oh boy, who would have thunk those three cups of coffee I had today really counted as fluids? <laughs> three cups? Clem, it's only like uh, 11 a.m. <laughs> I also think he's under, underestimating his coffee intake, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. 
And the other fluid that I think we should be asking our patients about is Gatorade. Uh, I think especially when our patients are feeling unwell, they're chucking it, um, especially because the marketing of it makes it seem like, oh, it's filled with all these electrolytes. But actually, it's a hypotonic fluid and really mostly water. And then once I have a sense of, of the water that's coming in from the fluids in general, I try to ask about dietary intake just from a sense of what I would call solute or just the things that they're eating and how often they're eating. And Dr. William told us one quite memorable story. And her son tells me all she eats are Dove bars, like the ice cream with the chocolate on the outside. And I was like, hmm, I think this is a tea and toast diet. (laughs) You know, if there ever was one, you know, she's not like eating tea and toast, but she's drinking plenty of fluids and she's eating Dove bars. So clearly her fluid intake was outstripping her solute intake because she wasn't really taking in any true solute. (laughs) Uh, It was just ice cream and chocolate. Now that I appreciate just how much a thorough ins and outs history can be in hyponatremia, I think it's interesting how aggressive we actually get with um, heart failure and and doing ins and outs in that. But now I'm convinced that we need to be even more hands-on with ins and outs in hyponatremia. Uh, I's and O's, so important, but so elusive. That actually uh, leads in perfectly with the second big picture pain point in hyponatremia management, which is its frustratingly multifactorial nature. Because as convenient as it is for us to think about patients in these neat little buckets like SIADH or T and toe syndrome and follow the diagnostics, that's not always the way it goes in clinical practice. Yeah, and Dr. Helbert Rondon, a nephrologist at the University of Pittsburgh, gave us an example of someone who had a, you know, tea and toast, low solute kind of picture. So classically, you'd expect them to have a really low urine osm, right? But people are more complicated than that. Usually, the cutoff is not that crystal clear, 100, because sometimes uh, you could see somebody who has low solute intake hyponatremia, and the urine osmolarity is 150 or 160 on the low side, but not less than 100. When you ask the patient, you know, um, the patient might have some nausea from drinking too much or something like that. So you see those overlapping pictures sometimes. So I love this example, right? Because things that are, again, are so common, right? Nausea, pain, different medications can really cloud the picture by releasing some inappropriate ADH, causing water reabsorption, kicking up that urinosum and clouding what we expect our urine studies to be. And the last big picture point we wanted to stress is that in the management of hyponatremia, sometimes not doing anything as you're waiting for data to come back is something. A lot of times the urine studies, which often aren't collected in the ED, right? They're collected by the overnight resident or by us in the morning. Um, They're collected at a very awkward time in which they're they're confounded by the effects of what has happened to the body over the initial 12 to 24 hours. Um, Even if the intervention is doing nothing, like nothing is something, right? Like withholding beer or withholding free access to water is something. This goes back to Dr. Wong's initial point that hyponatremia is dynamic and we need to figure out how this time point of urine studies fits in the overall context of what's been going in and out of this patient's body so we can interpret it a bit more correctly. One example of this is sometimes the urine osms are kind of low-ish, right? They're elevated, but they're not super elevated. They're like 200 or 250 and the urine sodium is kind of low you know, 15 or 20 or 12 or something like that. 
And you might try to finagle that into, oh, this is, this is hypovolemia. But an equally plausible explanation is you've collected urine studies at the moment where the body is actually correcting, right? The stimulus for the you know, ADH release has, has, has been removed and their body is transitioning into making a more dilute urine, large amounts of the dilute urine. What a great example of trying to understand where in the trajectory you're catching those urine studies. Why don't we summarize? I think we've covered a lot of good ground. Big takeaways is that you'll be better able to manage hyponatremia if you get a really detailed fluid and solute history and try to understand where on that water solute balance your patient falls. Right, right. And not just obtain the history and forget it, but keep track of it as you try interventions while the patient's in the hospital. Being mindful that there's multiple insults going in and multiple things that could be going on. And lastly, that doing nothing is something in the management of hyponatremia and in and of itself can impact the sodium. All right. So we've discussed the relative imbalance of fluids and solute that leads to hyponatremia states. So it really shouldn't come as any surprise that most of hyponatremia management is just targeting those inputs, fluid and solutes. So which one of them do you want to tackle first, Clem? Let's start with fluids for 100. Okay, so let's jump right into this. You're taking care of a clearly hypovolemic patient who also has hyponatremia. The nurse is about to spike a bag of crystalloid and asks you, what do you want to use? What do you think about that, Shrey? Uh, great question, right? Because we could use balanced fluid like lactated ringers. It seems like it's a bit more kidney protective or normal saline, right? Normal saline has a little bit more sodium content. No, as long as they're isotonic or hypertonic, it doesn't matter. Huh. So maybe it'd be helpful to briefly remember how fluids help in hyponatremia. And to be specific, how do fluids help in true hypovolemic hyponatremia? In these situations, you're actually providing the volume, and then the volume expansion shuts off ADH, right? The expansion of the volume within the vasculature is going to, you know, turn off those baroreceptor responses, ADH will shut off. And that's actually what makes the serum sodium better is as ADH shuts off, your kidneys start to excrete the water that is in excess in the body. And that's how hyponatremia gets better in the setting of true hypovolemia with an isotonic fluid. Okay, got it. So in true hypovolemia causing hyponatremia and thinking about fluid choices, it sounds like tiny differences in salt content are really negligible and don't matter as much in the grand scheme of things. Okay, but I feel like in the hospital, there's another common confusing situation I bump into. I often get these patients with unclear histories and oftentimes they end up having SAIDH. Uh, what do we do about fluids in that case? Ooh, okay, that's a little bit more tricky. And this may be a cop-out, but I think I'm going to let Dr. Huang take this one. It is a misconception that if you give intravenous fluid to somebody with SIDH, you will make the sodium worse. That is, when I teach hyponatremia to my residents, that is just something that I start off with. And when I get a bunch of quizzical looks, that's my opportunity to then get into the, the explanation a little bit. Oh, wow. That's a plot twist. I think in residency, we all get drilled into our heads that SADH is treated with fluid restriction and salt tabs. So how can fluids actually help? I'm really comparing the fluids osmolality to the urine osmolality. And if you are giving a fluid that has a higher osmolality than the urine, then you will be able to excrete the free water or the extra water. If you're giving a, a fluid that has a lower osmolality than your urine, 
then you're going to hang on to water. So the big takeaway here is that if you're going to give fluids, even an SIDH, just make sure that the osms of the fluids you're giving are higher than the urine osms. Yeah, it's a bit more nuanced than all isotonic fluids are bad for SIDH. The classic SIADH example where you assume that the ADH release is relatively constant, and let's just say it's creating a urine osmolality of 600. So in this case, you would need to give a fluid that has an osmolality greater than 600 in order to improve the hyponatremia. There's only a few fluids that do this, and this is when we give 3% saline or hypertonic saline, and it works, right, because it has an osmolality of over 1,000. So it's going to work. You're going to excrete free water as a result. You're delivering extra solute to excrete water. All right, but on the flip side, if the patient has a urine osmo of 600, giving a fluid with a lower osmolality, like with isotonic fluid, which has an osmolality around 300 or so, would actually make the sodium worse. You're creating a situation that's actually worse, where you're giving extra water. Um, and this is even worse if you give half normal saline or D5, which are even more hypotonic. And guys, if you're like me and you have a tough time memorizing the osmolality of all those different fluids, make sure you check out the infographic from our recent fluids episode, which really has it laid out very nicely. Yeah. And then one last thing to mention in the the giving fluids part of this is uh, something that one of our reviewers, Dr. Shelin Chen, pointed out, is that the rate with which you infuse fluids actually matters. So it's a bit much to cover in this episode, and if you're interested, go check it out in our show notes. But basically, he lays out uh, using the Edelman equation and shows the difference between infusing isotonic fluid at, say, 40 cc's an hour in someone with SIADH versus 100 cc's an hour in SIADH and shows that you actually get um, a difference in, in the sodium level based on how fast you infuse it. Wow, I think that's going to go over my head, but I'm sure Tim is excited to read about it. Don't put that on me, Clem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, enough on fluids, I think. We need to take a hard pivot here. Um, we talked about using fluids to treat hyponatremia, but how do you guys think about fluid restriction in the management of hyponatremia? Yeah, I'm not sure my method is that elegant. I feel like I just eyeball my patient, and if by my gestalt they're drinking too much free water, I start a fluid restriction, and then I just keep pushing it until they get mad. Ugh, yes, <laughs> I do know that struggle. But uh, don't worry, Clem, everything you do is elegant. And actually, it turns out that your approach isn't completely wrong. In terms of how much of a fluid restriction is um, worthwhile, I guess what I would say is as much as possible. You know, they, you have to drink something. So let's just say they take in three liters of fluid every day. If they have hyponatremia and you say, you know what, I'm going to restrict you to one and a half liters a day, it's going to get better. Okay. Amazing. I love it when medicine is intuitive and the math makes sense. Or as a Gen Z say on TikTok, when the math maths. Ah, the math maths. <laughs> no cap when that, that slaps. You guys are going to have to translate all of that for me. No, I think sometimes it's better <laughs> not to know, Shreya. Uh, maybe somebody uh, can can put this in the comments and, and let me know what that means. But anyways, back to setting up our patients for success. I think one thing that Dr. William said really nicely and I think just was so great is how do we tell our patients about fluid restrictions? I think too often we just kind of stick a paper on the wall saying fluid restriction and not looping in our patients. The way that you do this is you you tell the patient to fill up a, a pitcher to an amount of fluid. You say your restriction is 1.2 liters for today. 
And that is the only fluid they drink the whole day. And when it's done, it's done. Yeah. Since this interview, I've actually been getting out those gray pictures from the pantries and showing it to patients. Okay, this is a leader. And I've actually found patients have been just so much more attuned and following through with fluid restriction. Um, It's just helpful all around because I think it's just hard for everyone to conceptualize what a leader actually is. Yeah, sure. I love those gray pictures as well. However, not to rain on your patient education parade, I'm kind of a pessimist. Are we sure that fluid restriction is even going to work in the long run? Rather than, you know, waiting to see if fluid restriction will work or not, we have certain predictors that can tell us if this patient will respond to fluid restriction or not. So one rule of thumb is measuring the urine osmolality. If this urine osmolality is really high, say more than 500, then it's telling you that most of the water that you take in is going to be reabsorbed. So it's going to be very difficult for a patient to restrict enough water so that they're not going to worsen their hyponatremia. The way I think of this is that if the urine osmosis is so high above 500, that just means there's so much ADH around reabsorbing free water that fluid restriction alone won't touch it. So urine osmolality of greater than 500, I think is a good general rule. But if I know nephrologists, they've got a ratio for this. Is there any more accurate way that we can predict in these scenarios? The main one that we could use is um, this urine to plasma electrolyte ratio, which we calculate by adding the urine sodium plus potassium and divided it by the serum sodium. If you missed that, we will link how to calculate the ratio in the show notes. But just remember to order both the urine sodium and the urine potassium for the ratio. Ah, Always forget the potassium. Yeah, right? Don't forget. If the ratio is less than one, it means that the patient is actively excreting free water in the urine. And all you need to do is restrict the fluid to less than what they're screening in the urine plus insensible losses. Those patients usually will respond to fluid restriction. Yeah, and what Dr. Rondon is saying is a throwback to Pearl 1 so that if that ratio is less than one, your patients are on the side with more fluid than solute, and that's why restricting fluids will help. The great majority have a ratio more than one, meaning they will have a negative free water clearance, which means that they are retaining water. And even if you put them on zero flow restriction, they might get worse. So in those patients, rather than waiting, we know that they're not going to respond the first day. So we add a medication. And that exact medication we will talk a bit more about in a couple of pearls. So with that, why don't we bring it home for our listeners, guys? You got it. To recap this pearl, if your patient needs fluids, what type of fluid doesn't really matter that much, but you do want to make sure that whatever fluid you're choosing is more osmolar, or to say in other words, has a higher electrolyte concentration than the urine. Yeah, and with fluid restriction, you've got to set your patients up for success. Don't just tell them what the fluid limit is. Go ahead and raid your unit pantry and bust out those gray (laughs) water pitchers like Shreya and educate them. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And then, yeah, take a look at that urine osm. If it's greater than 500 or if the urine sodium plus urine potassium is greater than the serum sodium, if that's the case, then your patient probably is not going to respond to fluid restriction alone. The times when fluid restriction really does work is when that patient has been drinking a lot of water beforehand. The tricky part now is like, what if 
they weren't drinking a whole lot of fluid, then what is the fluid restriction going to do? The answer to Dr. Williams' rhetorical question there is, unfortunately, not a whole heck of a lot. But, but, in Pearl 3, we're going to talk about something else that we can sprinkle into the mix. So now we all understand that hyponatremia really comes down to an imbalance between solutes and fluid. Now it's time for us to talk about the other half of the picture, solutes. Right. So this is where we have to remember the old aphorism. Excreting water isn't free. We need some solute to make our pee. <laughs> Dr. Seuss has entered the chat. So how does this work? So remember that the, the urine osmolality has a range, right? It's like ranges from 50 to 1,200 in the, the human kidney or whatever. So, um, so what that tells you is that, yes, urine is never straight up water. Never. It can't be because you need solute to, to excrete water. I don't know if I have a great explanation as to why that's true. I'm sure that there is. Um, but, but it should stand to reason that if the lower end of a urine osmolality is greater than zero, <laughs> that you need some sort of solute to get rid of water Okay, at all times. That is so interesting. So I guess if we need some solute to pee out free water, then are salt tabs just acting as a solute? That's why the hyponatremia improves. It's not because we're introducing more salt. It's because we're introducing solute, and that solute helps the excretion of water. And the excretion of water results in an improvement in hyponatremia. Oh, man, this is great. Clem, I know you're fixated on fluids, and not just because you measure your daily coffee intake in pots, but I've got to admit, you know, I've always been more of a solute guy myself. Wait, where is this going, Tim? Okay, hear me out here, Shreya. Hear me out. <laughs> you see, solute is the underdog, the real MVP, the goat of hyponatremia management. Because anybody can bolus a liter of saline or take the handle off on your patient's water tap, but solute administration, it's nuanced. It's cerebral. And sometimes it's actually kind of gross. Uh, I think I know where this is going, and I'm not sure I like it. Is is this going with urea? Are you talking about urea? Yeah, I think he's talking about urea. But let's hold that thought for a second and first talk about the OG solute, salt tabs. Yeah, you know, salt tabs are great in theory, right? Providing that solute as we just talked about. But have you guys ever seen sodium chloride tabs actually work on their own? The regimens that we use for salt tablets are have a very small solute load. Like the two grams three times a day is about less than 200 milliosomes per day of solute load. That's very small. Compared to, for instance, urea, which if we use the usual regimen, which is 15 grams twice a day, that's 500 milliosomes. So to, to match that solute load, you have to get 15 grams or more of sodium chloride to match that solute load to force water out. So, And 15 grams is something that is not <laughs> practical to... To, for patients to, to take on a daily basis, 15 tablets of salt. So therefore, when I use salt tablets, I don't use it as the main therapy for hyponatremia. Bummer. I think I've been underdosing salt tabs for a while now with that usual like one to two gram TID dosing. I guess um, I wasn't really providing my patients with enough solute to pee out free water. Yeah, Shrey, don't beat yourself up too much. You know, salt tabs have other downsides. They inherently make our patients really thirsty. And I think this backfires because our patients just end up drinking more water and tip that balance uh, of excess salt, water and solute. 
So if you end up taking in salt tabs and drinking more fluid, it's kind of a zero-sum game, right? Because you're just introducing more solute, you're matching it with more water, and you're just increasing volume. So if you are going to pres prescribe salt tabs for someone's hyponatremia, the most important thing about that treatment is the fluid restriction. And if they cannot maintain a fluid restriction with salt tabs, you might as well stop it because you're only going to make their hypertension worse, their volume status is going to go up, and the salt will be doing absolutely nothing helpful for you. I really appreciate hearing that reminder that salt tabs are not without risk, right? And it really makes me think about all the times where patients come in with heart failure or hypertensive urgency and they get put on a low sodium diet, which I know is debatable, but I just think it's interesting to think about all the times patients are on two grams sodium diets, um, but then they're also on three grams TID of salt tabs for their hyponatremia. <laughs> Yeah, it actually kind of bothers me that we might be making our patients' hypertension worse, but I think it probably happens more than we think. Yeah, I agree. It makes me wonder also if there are other things that we can use for solutes than salt tabs. I often turn to protein instead, um, and I ask patients to supplement their diet with a protein shake or some sort of protein powder. They can mix their own little protein shake, whatever is economical for them instead of buying the you know the tiny bottles at the pharmacy. And protein is solute too. But protein doesn't necessarily make you thirsty, not like salt will. So patients are often able to do this a little bit better. You know, using protein as a solute feels kind of genius to me. Yeah, and you guys might be wondering why that could work. And the reason is that protein is broken down into urea, which is a great solute for free water excretion. Yeah, man, this is practice changing for me. I have actually started telling my patients uh, whenever they're calling down to the cafeteria and I happen to just come in the room at that time, I'm like, no, 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 order more protein or meat in the meal and uh, order less carbs because that's not going to end up as a solute at all. Yeah, and speaking of protein breaking down into urea, let's hear just a little bit more about the new kid on the block in the solute game. Urea basically works as an osmotic diuretic. It makes you excrete water. One extra benefit of urea is that urea actually makes you retain sodium. So if you measure naturesis in patients with SIDH, when you give them urea, they retain sodium. Whoa, so urea is sort of like pulling double duty here. It's a solute to help eliminate free water, and it actually promotes sodium reabsorption. That sounds like all the things we want our hyponatremic patients to be doing. So why aren't we ordering this more often then? So urea, they use it a lot in Europe actually, and it's it can be quite effective. Um, it is challenging to get here in the U.S. Um, not exactly sure why. It's classified as a medical food, not a drug. Um, so it's never covered. And um, it's actually kind of expensive, it turns out. It also, you may not be surprised, tastes funny. <laughs> like sort of a urine quality to it, perhaps. Um, and they've tried to flavor it you know, make it lime, but it's still, you know, it's like drinking urine a little bit. Guys, not to say I told you so, but I definitely told you so. It is kind of gross. <laughs> but more urea might be on the horizon, especially with Dr. Rondon's research. All the data that we have is retrospective at this point. But I think that if we can show that it's effective in a prospective trial, perhaps it can become officially a drug and maybe the insurance companies might be willing to pay for it. 
Nice. I would love to use some urea. I mean, it doesn't make our patients as thirsty, doesn't worsen their blood pressure, or even cause some GI irritation with salt tabs. Kind of jealous of Europe over here. <laughs> but I guess regardless, I am really grateful that we went over the three types of solutes with hyponatremia management. Why don't I recap some of the big takeaways? Yeah, sure. I'll uh, give it a shake. <laughs> uh, okay. First of all, we need to have solute to eliminate water. And most of us reflexively reach for salt tabs as that solute. But there are so many limitations with salt tabs. The doses that we have to use are often higher than any of our patients can stomach. They also provoke this terrible thirst response that really can be counterproductive. Because remember, we're in the business of trying to give these patients less fluid when we're managing hyponatremia from SIADH. Right. And then there's protein as a solute, which is really game-changing for me. Um, I'm ordering so many insurers already for my malnourished elderly patients, so I really like hearing that um, this can really help increase your solute intake. And the last solute, urea, which I admit is kind of gross, um, it doesn't come with the side effects that salt tabs do and can be just as effective if you have it. One solute to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's move on to Lasix. Pop quiz, Clem. Oh, man. <laughs> How do loop diuretics work? Come on. Ooh, you're making me reach all the way back to step one. I think it blocks the NAK2CL co-transporter in the medulla. Does that sound right? Nice, but you're not off the hook yet. Ugh. How does blocking that NAK2CL transporter in the medulla actually improve hyponatremia for our patients? I'm going to go with my number one answer, cytokines. Or two, VQ mismatch. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that, you just added that in for the pulmonologist. Anyways, A man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, you know, Clem, with regards to loop diuretics, I didn't know either, but it's pretty cool. Basically, things like furosemide take away the ADH's ability to reabsorb free water. Well, that's actually kind of huge. Yeah. Reducing ADH's ability to reabsorb free water Okay, I'm going to channel my inner Shreya because I know she <laughs> loves the Marvel references. That's like taking away the hammer of Thor. Right, or taking away Iron Man's suit or money or bank account. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> so to really understand how Lasix prevents ADH from working, we need to understand that ADH actually needs two things to happen to reabsorb free water. One, the insertion of aquaporins, and two, there needs to be a gradient so that the water will want to move back in the body. ADH leads to the insertion of aquaporins in the collecting duct, and once the aquaporins are in place, water can move from the urine in back into the interstitium of the kidney. It can, but aquaporins are passive, right? They don't actively transport water. There has to be a gradient to make the water want to move from the urine in the kidney. That, that gradient exists because of the loop of Henley. So when you give somebody a loop diuretic and you mess up the function of the loop, you've messed up the gradient and you're basically inhibiting uh, water absorption. Okay. So another way we can think about free water transit then, aquaporins are like the door, but it's the medullary gradient that actually pulls water through. In short, basically we say that loop diuretics wash out the medullary interstitium. So what does it do? Well, if the urine osmolality is 300, then the medulla is also 300. So no matter how much ADH you have, you could have SADH like crazy, the water won't be reabsorbed. So without that gradient, those poor little aquaporins are basically just hanging out all by their lonesome. Oh, 
That makes a lot of sense. And I agree that physiology is pretty neat. But aren't we taught that Lasix only lasts a few hours? Maybe six? You need a fair amount of loop diuretic to do this. Um, people say that you often need like up to TID at least 20 milligrams of furosemide to do this. Yeah, I see this quite a bit where uh, teams are up titrating Lasix from 20 milligrams to 40. But really with hyponatremia management, you're going to get the most bang for your buck by upping the frequency, right? So putting them on a low dose, TID, and making sure that gradient is washed out throughout the day. Now let's bring this all together. How do loop diuretics fit together with the other tools we have in our hyponatremia management toolbox? So loop diuretics is the main drug and salt taps are just a complement. Ah, okay. So we knock out those channels so there's no more gradient, but we still need solute to excrete the free water. Yeah. I'm still thinking about how Dr. Rondon says loops are his main drug of choice and salt tabs and everything else is just kind of complimentary. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I learned that for SIDH, you kind of reach for fluid restriction first, then salt tabs, and then reach for Lasix. And clearly, we should be rethinking this paradigm. Totally. Um, yeah. And maybe we should be reaching for Lasix earlier in SIADH management instead of waiting until day four or five and seeing that fluid restriction and salt tabs just aren't going to do the trick. I think I'm in a much better place thinking about the tools that we have to correct hyponatremia. But in reality, the etiology of hyponatremia is so important in the management too, especially when we find ourselves um, in a situation where there's inappropriate ADH secretion. I mean, there's just so many different causes there. Yeah. So on one hand, we're trying Lasix, fluid restriction, protein supplementation, salt tabs. But on the other hand, what sort of tests should we be sending off to figure out the cause of SADH? Yeah, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I feel like I'm almost reflexively sending TSH and morning cortisol. It was just so deeply ingrained in my primordial med student brain. Uh, but I wonder, is it actually really a helpful practice for us to be doing this with all of our patients? Right. Everybody checks the TSH. It's somewhere in some algorithm. It made it to whatever handbooks people carry. I don't know. But everybody checks it. And it's mostly normal. But even if it's abnormal, like when have you ever seen somebody with thyroid disease causative of a hyponatremia? Um, if you look in the literature, actually, it's extraordinarily rare. And there are even case reports of like profound hypothyroidism, myxedema, like coma, and they're normonatremic. So I think that we check it way more often than we really need to. I really appreciate Dr. William calling out something we probably do for no reason uh, most of the time. I think for so long, I hadn't thought twice about what are the chances that this patient has significant thyroid disease and their only presenting sign is a low sodium. That is what makes me question why, you know, we would even consider asking this question, right? It's like saying that hyponatremia is a feature of thyroid disease is not the same thing as saying, you know, hyponatremia in isolation, unexplained, can be a classic presentation of, you know, otherwise occult thyroid disease. Like I would pay attention if the latter was the case, but to, in my experience, that is that has not been true. So maybe the takeaway here is we really should be applying some Bayesian principles and only send a TSH if we have a high pretest probability of a thyroid disease, not just someone with isolated hyponatremia. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Clem. If you have a low sodium from hypothyroidism, it's probably not going to be a subtle presentation. But what do you guys think about cortisol levels? Do we really need to be sending these on all of our hyponatremic patients? If you think someone has adrenal insufficiency, you would expect them to look a certain way clinically, right? Yeah, and I guess without all that cortisol, clinically, these patients are going to usually be fatigued. Maybe some will have nausea, weight loss. So adrenal insufficiency causing hyponatremia is certainly a thing, but in a similar sense, right, we got to use our pretest probabilities for it. Yeah, I'll admit, Shrey, that I do find myself sending the cortisol a bit more than the TSH because most of the signs and symptoms of adrenal insufficiency are vague and nonspecific, and I just don't want to miss it. Yeah, totally. Um, and also, I was always taught that urine studies in adrenal insufficiency can look like SIADH because the mechanism involves CRH stimulating ADH release. Is that really what causes it? This gets a little bit tricky. So is it really the hypovolemia? that's leading to a volume stimulus to cause ADH release? Or is it this more endocrinologic pathway of CRH or cortisol releasing hormone being a secretagogue of ADH? So here, distinguish between primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency can be helpful. Primary adrenal insufficiency, both aldosterone and cortisol take a hit and leads to more of a hypovolemic picture because of that aldosterone deficiency. Compare that to secondary adrenal insufficiency, which is only cortisol deficient. Without that cortisol, there is all this unsuppressed ADH around. And so secondary adrenal insufficiency is going to look more like an SIADH, inappropriate ADH picture. Wow. I am <laughs> learning so much about the endocrine causes of hyponatremia, really uh, really dusting off some, some parts of the brain that I haven't thought of in a while. But while we're waiting for the AM cortisol to cook, let's turn our attention over to a notoriously tricky cause of hyponatremia, medications. Anyone who has hyponatremia secondary to SIADH requires a, a thorough review of their medication list, especially new ones if the hyponatremia is new. Um, and if their hyponatremia is chronic, then it's, it's everything's fair game. The case reports are boundless about drugs that people have surmised may have led to SADH, which of course is, is difficult to ever really prove. Well, hearing that really gives me a lot of anxiety <laughs> that almost any drug can do it. Yeah, right. I, and this is why I felt strongly about really like grilling our experts about what are the common offenders that we should really be having on our radar. That anti, the anti-convulsants and the anti-psychotics, I feel like I've seen a fair number of cases where we've been fairly confident that that's, that's the reason why. So there's like a patient who's on psychiatry, then they were started on Valpro-8 for a bit, and the resident notices, hey, why is this person hyponatremic? You think to yourself, oh, maybe it was the Valpro-8. Okay, a truly harrowing number of medications can do it, but really look out for anticonvulsants and antipsychotics. But what if we don't uncover an endocrine cause or any offending medication and we're just sitting there scratching our heads? Then what do we do? Yeah, I think this is tough and we find ourselves in this situation a lot. And this is where we probably should think about what are the other potent stimuli for ADH release? One of our reviewers actually put it really nicely as thinking about what are things that make the body feel like it needs to conserve water or situations where the body feels like it's in danger and wants to release ADH. So things like nausea and pain. Once it sort of gets, um, you know, somebody posits an explanation like, oh, well, they're post-op and they're in pain. So that must be it. 
or, you know, oh, they're so nauseated. Like they have, they, that's why they have excess ADH. Like they're these sort of nonspecific reasons. But I guess the one caution that I would say is that, you know, have they had any recent imaging, right? And, and mostly when we're talking about imaging for SIADH, we're mostly talking about the lungs and the brain. Ah, the lungs, the lungs. (laughs) I am so glad he brought up chest imaging. Ah, said like a true pulmonologist. Um, But guys, here's where I struggle, right? If there isn't a clear cause, I can do all the management tricks, right, to make that uh, sodium number look better, right? Fluid restriction, Lasix, all the things we talked about. But realistically, it's not a good discharge plan, sending someone home uh, or to rehab on TID salt tabs and fluid restrictions, how much do I really need to chase the lung and brain imaging? So true, Shreya. I'm, I'm really glad that we're thinking about transitions of care, which can be such a vulnerable time for our patients. What I feel like I do when I have a patient with SIADH with no clear culprit is I'll typically just look back to see when the last time they had chest imaging was. And if they've got normal chest imaging during the time that they were hyponatremic, then I don't typically feel like SIADH warrants re-imaging in and of itself. Yeah, and in a similar vein, if my patient doesn't have focal neurologic findings, confusion, or history of intracranial pathology, I personally don't think it's that crucial to get brain imaging upfront. Yeah, and I guess this is where we can reach out to our friendly nephrologist to come and help think of what may be the best thing to do in some of these more nuanced cases. Clem, why don't we recap some of the things we hit on here? Sure. To summarize this last pearl, the causes of hyponatremia are truly boundless, but high-yield things might be to review the med list, the past imaging, to think about adrenal insufficiency, which really is tricky to diagnose. And finally, if there are other signs of hypothyroidism, send a TSH. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, get a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Please tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page or Instagram or Facebook page. Thank you so, so much to our peer reviewers, Dr. Richard Stearns, Dr. Thomas Guerrero, and Dr. Sheldon Chen. Thank you to Dr. Spathia for audio editing, as well as to Dr. Michelle Lowe for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing feedback, so please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. So when there's true hyponatremia, uh, Mm, hypokalemia. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. twist. (laughs) He pointed out that the rate with which you influence (laughs) If your patient needs more fluids, the nitty-gritty of what type of fluid... Um, Do you want to say that again? I think you said patient. I was going to let it go. I thought it would sound cool. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership... We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 